basic message of the second book of the uh, Old Testament, second book of the Bible. We're developing this just in overview. There is obviously a great deal of theology, a great deal of history that this book sets down. It is the uh, great foundation, really, of most of the truths, the doctrines of redemption that are further developed and explained uh, in the rest of the Scriptures. I suggested that there is hardly uh, a doctrine of redemption, hardly a doctrine of salvation, that in one way or another does not find its uh, beginning, or at least the beginning of explanation, uh, here in the book of Exodus. We have redemptive history. Uh, that's significant in and of itself. Uh, and we have also the theological declarations expressly stated uh, and also in what we'll identify as type uh, as we have this whole tabernacle and sacrificial uh, setup uh, instituted under what we typically refer to as this mosaic covenant or this covenant with Israel. Uh, and that really is at the heart of the message. We have in the book of Exodus the beginning uh, of the nation of Israel. Uh, here's the birth, the independence uh, of a nation. Uh, and the very fact that we have now a continuation of the covenant uh, is a reminder to us that uh, the covenant blessings of God is not limited uh, and was not uh, initially defined in terms of the nation of Israel. I think that still stands as one of the great misunderstandings uh, and abuses, therefore, of the Old Testament Scripture, that it's just a book for Israel. Uh, it's not. Uh, the message here of redemption, the message of salvation, is always universalistic. Uh, it always has the world in view. Uh, that's clear from Genesis. And now we come to Exodus as we have this chosen people, a chosen nation that is uh, vitally linked to the development of God's plan of salvation that would ultimately come in Christ. Uh, but nonetheless, still a universalism uh, that we must understand. Uh, the promise of Messiah uh, was never in the Old Testament a uniquely Jewish promise. Uh, it was always viewed with worldwide implications uh, and worldwide significance. We keep that in mind as we come to Exodus, because Exodus is dealing now particularly with God's special dealings with uh, an individual people, a particular people, uh, but let's remember, and I think I emphasized this when we first came to this uh, discussion, that the book of Genesis was written to the same people. Uh, and we, we have this, if I can put it in these terms, this canonical history here that we must be aware of. Uh, we, we read the book of Genesis, and here's creation, uh, and, and here's, the, uh, here's the flood, and here's the call of Abraham, all of this stuff taking place thousands and hundreds of years. Uh, before we come to the events that are described in the book of Exodus. Uh, and we very, very definitely see the universalism uh, of the gospel. Here is the seed of the woman. Here is the redeemer that is going to come into humanity uh, to be the reverser of that curse. Uh, and here is that promise repeated to Noah uh, that is going to be in Shem, that we have God tabernacling, God uh, dwelling in the tents of Shem. Uh, and there's blessing for Japheth, and there's blessing for Ham. So there is, again, the entirety uh, of the human race that finds its ultimate 
uh, blessing, its ultimate salvation, the reversing of the curse in this coming seed. And here is then the call of Abraham. Uh, and it is in Abraham that all the nations of the world uh, are going to be blessed because of that seed. So we have this seed development, the seed of the woman, then it becomes the seed of Shem, and then the seed of Abraham. Uh, but all of this, very definitely in Genesis, has this worldwide focus. But now we come to Exodus. Uh, and in Exodus now we are looking at this very specially and very specifically uh, to the nation of Israel. Uh, and we are going to have now the formal introduction of the tabernacle, of the uh, religious rites in the various sacrifices that were well-defined now. Uh, but we can't interpret, I'm saying that to say this, that we can't interpret what's going on in Exodus apart from what was going on in Genesis. Genesis was written to the same people at the same time uh, that the book of Exodus was written. Uh, and so when these Jews now, when this nation of Israel were to come to the tabernacle, and they were to bring these various animals for sacrifice, how were they to interpret those sacrifices? They were to interpret those sacrifices in terms of the seed of the woman, uh, in terms of the seed of Abraham. Uh, these Jews walking around in the wilderness, uh, to whom this wonderful message of redemption was given, were never told uh, that they were to place their faith in a goat or a bull or a sheep. Uh, these were all types, as we're going to see here. Uh, of the seed of the woman, of the seed of Abraham, uh, that uh, was revealed to these people at exactly the same time uh, that all of this mosaic ritual and mosaic economy uh, was, was offered. Uh, Schofield argues in, in, in chapter 19 that when God uh, made this revelation to Israel, that here was their abject rejection of the promise that was given to Abraham. Uh, that is probably, and, and I say this as, as kindly as, as I can, uh, that is probably one of the stupidest things I've ever read. Uh, here is the revelation of God that is revealing the gospel. The same gospel that was revealed to Abraham uh, is now revealed to these people uh, in terms of this uh, picture uh, administration. Uh, but nonetheless, it is the same gospel. Remember what Paul says. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, what's the difference? What is the difference between what Paul preached and what Moses preached? You study carefully 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, and you'll find this, that Paul is contending that what Moses preached and what I preach is exactly the same thing. But yet, my ministry is superior uh, to the ministry of Moses. We live in a dispensation that is superior to the dispensation of Moses. Uh, but what is the nature of that superiority? Uh, it is not the message. Uh, it is the same gospel that Moses preached, that Paul preached. But the difference is in the administration, uh, in the way that is preached. Paul says, no longer do we go through all of this stuff. I'm paraphrasing. No longer do we go through all of this stuff, but we speak it plainly. All right, We speak the message plainly. Uh, all of the ritual, all of the types, all of the foreshadowings uh, have now been set aside. Uh, they were foreshadowings of the reality. Now, I'm saying that because we're looking particularly here at Exodus chapter 12. Uh, as we consider this theme of deliverance uh, in the book of Exodus, how God delivered his people, uh, who it is that God delivered, uh, and why did God deliver, and where did God deliver, uh, this great theme of deliverance runs all the way through the book. Uh, God delivers His people to bring them to a place of service uh, unto Him. 
uh, from one bondage. Uh, and if I can use uh, really the terminology that uh, Moses uses in this book, from one bondage into another bondage. Uh, bondage to liberation, yes. Uh, but that is a bondage unto the Lord in the exact same terms. And this is a, a remarkable observation, I think. Uh, that the exact same terms that describes the bondage of Israel to the Egyptians uh, is the same term that describes now their service unto the Lord. Uh, a different master, uh, a different master, uh, but it is nonetheless a service that is rendered unto the Lord. Now, how is it that God delivered? We talked earlier about why God delivered. Because of His covenant promises. Uh, because of his concern and his compassion for these people that were part of that covenant development. Uh, great theme. Not because they deserved it. Uh, Israel uh, was just as guilty of idolatry and just as guilty of uh, paganism as the Egyptians. And I think, again, it's important to understand that. Uh, we have this flannel graph mentality sometimes of how we interpret uh, the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament uh, narratives. Uh, I don't want us to have the impression that the nation of Israel were there in the land of bondage suffering for the cause of righteousness. Uh, they were not there as persecuted saints. Uh, they were pagans, uh, the most of them. There was a remnant according to grace. There always was and there always will be. Uh, but the most of them, and we see this certainly demonstrated uh, not long after they leave uh, the land of Egypt, uh, the paganism and the idolatry. Uh, Joshua makes this very clear. Uh, God delivered them by grace. The book uh, of Exodus stands as testimony to the absolute grace of God uh, in saving His people. But our discussion over these past couple of weeks, took a little break last week on it, but we've been looking now particularly at how God delivered these people. Uh, and the book of Exodus focuses upon two principal truths. He delivered them by power. Uh, and that great emphasis upon the right hand of God, the, uh, the arm of God that was laid bare, the right hand of God uh, that delivered these people uh, from the uh, strongest nation on the face of the earth. Uh, and that is no little thing. Uh, we again read this uh, historically and it just kind of passes over us. Uh, but when we're talking about Egypt in this period of the new empire, we are talking about the strongest nation on the face of the earth, right at the very height uh, of their power and their glory. Uh, but God considered uh, the Egyptian uh, government, He considered the Egyptian gods as nothing. They were nothing before Him. With what ease uh, He delivers His people. So they're a focus there upon the power of God. How does God redeem? It takes the power of God uh, to redeem then even a sinner from the bondage of His darkness. But then the focus upon the blood. He delivered by the blood, notwithstanding the omnipotence of God. Uh, there could not be the redemption uh, apart from the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no release from sin. Uh, and the book of Exodus here is a picture prophecy for us. It is a picture illustration for us uh, of what uh, God does in requiring uh, and in effecting, I should say, uh, the salvation of the sins, from the sins uh, of his people. Now, the emphasis upon the blood uh, is very clearly set down for us in chapter 12, where we have the institution of uh, this first Passover, perhaps one of the most well-known stories uh, in the book of Exodus. 
the great event of the Passover, the climax uh, of that series of ten plagues. Uh, as the Lord announced to the land that there would be the death of the firstborn uh, right across the land unless there was the shedding of the blood of the lamb and the sprinkling of the blood of that lamb upon the doorpost, the lintels of every house. Every house that had the blood, uh, the firstborn of that home would be spared. But when there was no blood, there was going to be the execution uh, of death right across the land. Uh, and uh, this, I say, is the climax to this whole series uh, of plagues. But in this institution, then, of the first Passover, uh, which became, as we're going to see here in a moment, uh, one of the most important yearly celebrations for the people of Israel, uh, God was teaching them, by picture, what the Lord Jesus Christ was going to do. And if we come to this Passover celebration without seeing Christ, uh, we miss the implication. And I don't say that just from our perspective. All right? And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that just from our perspective. It is not just that I have Paul that tells me Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, that gives us the warrant for seeing Christ here. Uh, we have to understand, please, that these people did not interpret the Scripture in isolation as we tend to do. Uh, here is all of this precedence. Why I started here. Here is all of this antecedent revelation. Here is this promise of the seed of the woman. Here is this promise of the seed of Abraham. Uh, here is God manifesting the flesh that was promised in the book of Genesis that would be the redeemer of God's people uh, that now carries through uh, into the book of Exodus as well. Uh, and though it, those in the Old Testament dispensation uh, that were truly saved, uh, were truly saved by putting their faith, consciously putting their faith, uh, in the person of the coming Redeemer. They did not know everything that we know. They did not know His name was going to be Jesus, uh, that He would live in Nazareth. They didn't know at this time that He would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. There's a lot they did not know about the attendant circumstances uh, of the life and the ministry of this one. But they knew that the seed of the woman was going to bruise the head of the serpent. They knew that the serpent was going to bruise the heel uh, of this seed. Uh, there was much they did know uh, in, in general terms, but the focus upon the person. Yes, more and more details are given. But one of the ways that God revealed these truths uh, is by giving them very uh, basic pictures and very basic object lessons uh, of what uh, the reality of uh, Christ was going to do. Now we call these types. All right? we, we, we throw this word type around uh, a lot. That's a type of this, a type of that. Now I know we've addressed this before, uh, but I want us to keep this in mind and plug this in as we come to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for His people. And by a type, uh, I, I simply mean a picture prophecy. That's all a type is. A type is a picture prophecy. A type is not something that some spiritual preacher has the acumen to come to and, and, and rescue something Christological from that text. Uh, it is not something that we are reading into that text to try to somehow rescue it uh, for, for Christian usage. Uh, no, sir. Uh, a type is something that God intended. A type is something, therefore, that if I do not see and do not recognize, I misinterpret. 
what the Lord is saying. It is not a hermeneutical principle. Can I put it that way? Typology is not an interpretational principle that I am using uh, to interpret the Old Testament. No. Now, there are interpretational principles that I use in interpreting types. Uh, there are certain common sense things and biblical things that I want to exercise uh, in interpreting types. But the recognition of typology is not a hermeneutical or interpretational principle that I foist upon the Old Testament. Uh, it is that which God intends. And a type, then, is a picture prophecy that has the authority of God behind it, uh, that has the origination of God, and uh, is going to be, then, a illustration, an analogy, if you will. Look at this object lesson. All right? It's an object lesson uh, that has a future implication. Uh, and, and this progressiveness of, revela of revelation, God was, uh, was being kind, if you will, and God, knowing the frame of man, uh, revealed truth in ways that men could understand truth. God did not just start dropping along with the manna uh, in, in the wilderness, the, these vocabulary words, right, vicarious atonement. Uh, pick that up and chew on that a while. He, he didn't drop with the manna one day uh, the, 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 the notion of propitiation. No, 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 no. Uh, he, he didn't just start throwing around theological terms. Uh, he, he, he revealed these truths to them in ways that they could understand to get a picture uh, of what the Lord was doing. And, and the whole sacrificial system, this whole Passover, uh, was an object lesson uh, that God was giving to these people and giving to us, I can still learn from the object lesson. I don't repeat the object lesson, but I can still learn the points of similarity uh, that direct to the same, uh, to, to the same Christ. Uh, they were shadows. The New Testament right. Uh, the New Testament refers to these, uh, what I'm calling types, as shadows. As shadows. Uh, now, again, it doesn't take a lot of sense. Uh, to figure out what a shadow is. You go outside here and you'll see your shadow. Uh, you can walk out there in the parking lot and, and there is your shadow. Now that shadow represents me. I'm the one casting that shadow as it were. But that shadow is not the reality. Uh, but the very presence of the shadow, the shadow does not exist. The shadow does not exist apart from the reality. If I stay here, all right, and this is very obvious, right? I, I don't mean to be... Uh, stating the obvious, but uh, you, you understand this. If, if I stay here and, and, and I send out someone here to check for my shadow in the parking lot, it's not going to be there. And, and they'll come back and I looked all over for your shadow, but it's not there. Well, of course it's not there because I'm here. The reality is here, so there can't be the shadow. All right? This is the imagery and the language God uses to describe what was taking place in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrifices were shadows. They were shadows. They were not the reality. But the shadow could not exist unless what? Unless there was a reality. Unless there was Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And because He is that reality, uh, here are these shadows that are not what must be believed, but what must point to. They were pointers to uh, the reality. I see my shadow. I, what, what's casting that shadow? I look to the reality. And that's exactly what the Old Testament saint did. And I use the word saint here. What the Old Testament saint did. Now, there were plenty of Old Testament unbelievers that didn't do that. But the Old Testament saint looked at that shadow and said, where's the reality? What's the reality? Uh, and the eye and the heart of faith was directed uh, to that reality. Now, see that, please, as you come to this first Passover. 
great lessons that we have in the importance and the necessity of the blood uh, as far as redemption is concerned. I've already uh, said two of the things that I want to say uh, about chapter 12 in our previous discussions. But remember, please, that we saw that uh, the Passover is a lesson for us, first of all, in sovereign grace. Uh, in sovereign grace. There were some that died that night. There were some that lived that night. God put the difference. Uh, and we've emphasized again uh, that uh, the Israelites, by nature, were no better than the Egyptians. But by grace, they were saved. The blood gives us the second thing that we developed. Uh, the blood is a lesson in substitutionary atonement. And what a beautiful picture this is. An obvious substitute. Here is the sentence that was placed upon the firstborn. But the firstborn would live if the animal, if the lamb, died in its place. If there is to be the life of the firstborn, if there is to be the life of that one that is spared, that is saved, it is because of someone other, someone outside of himself, uh, that took the penalty, that took the death, uh, and as a consequence, he lives. Uh, well, there's the vicariousness. When we talk about the vicarious atonement, uh, big word, yeah? But uh, a vicar, a vicarious, is simply a substitution. We talk about a substitutionary atonement. We can't make it ourselves. We can't appease God ourselves. But there is that one outside of us. This is what the Passover was teaching. That if there is to be deliverance, if there is to be salvation, it has to come from somebody outside of yourself. You can't do this. You can't save yourself. There's nothing that you can offer to God. Uh, that will satisfy him. It must be a sacrifice of one outside of yourself. And that one has to be perfect. Uh, and the perfection here of the Lamb speaks of that absolute impeccability and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter says, that Lamb without spot, without blemish, uh, that uh, became the sacrifice and the substitute uh, for our sins. A slain sacrifice. He had to be slain. There was the penalty of justice that had to be executed. Uh, and he did. Uh, our Savior took the, uh, the IOU, the debt that we owed uh, God, the debt that we owed the law. Uh, and he took the full wages uh, of our sin, the penalty uh, that we had earned, that we had deserved. He was slain as a payment for justice. And the blood was shed. It was not just the slaying of the lamb. Moses did not tell the people, get out there and kill that lamb. The lamb had to be slain, but it was the use of the blood and the taking of the blood, the shedding of the blood, and then the manipulation, if I can call it that, the application of the blood upon uh, the doorpost of every house uh, that ultimately was the salvation for those people. Uh, it is not just the death of Christ. It is not just the death of Christ as an objective reality that is the salvation for sinners. Uh, it is the application of the death of Christ. Uh, it is by faith as we appropriate uh, and have that blood applied to our lives that we have salvation. Uh, it is enough that Jesus died and that Jesus died for me. Uh, and the application of the blood upon every single house that was spared uh, was a very vivid picture of the necessity for the application of the blood uh, if there is to be salvation. And it reminds us here and speaks to us volumes, I think, of the success uh, of that atonement. Wherever the blood is applied, there's life. Wherever the blood is applied, there is going to be 
uh, deliverance. And this is remarkably clear as you read through Exodus chapter 12. There were many firstborn that died in Egypt that night, but not one firstborn died who was in a house that was covered by the blood. Uh, the sacrifice worked. The sacrifice was successful. It did what God declared it was going to do. Uh, and so it is then as we all, as we plug this into the reality. Uh, what does this speak to us then of Christ? It speaks of His absolute perfection, uh, whereby He is able, because of His sinlessness, uh, to be that effective sacrifice and substitute for our sins. It speaks of the success of uh, the shedding of His blood, uh, as He paid the debt of justice, as He propitiated the wrath of God, and now as that blood is applied, uh, there is life and there is life abundant and spiritual and eternal uh, for all of those that have been so covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So it's a great lesson, this Passover, uh, in the substitutionary atonement. Now, we've already talked about that, but we've got some in here, so i just give you a quick review. Two other things that I want to say uh, about, uh, about the Passover here. Uh, it's a lesson. Uh, it is a lesson for us in saving faith. It gives us an important lesson in saving faith. Faith places trusts, uh, places its trust uh, in the blood. Look at verse seven. And they shall take the blood, strike it on the two side posts, on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it, where they'll eat the sacrifice. And uh, it's as that blood was applied. As by obedience. And here's going to be a link between faith and obedience. Uh, faith here was demonstrated by the obedience to what God had said. You take that blood and you put that blood upon the doorposts. There's the application of it. And it was the blood, then I say, that makes the difference. The difference between life and death that night was the application of the blood. I've often uh, thought of this. I remember one time, remember... Remember when uh, Paisley was here some time ago? It's been some time ago. Uh, did a series of meetings for us. Remember he preached on the Passover. And he gave an illustration uh, that I thought was most, uh, most remarkable. Uh, and, and I've never forgotten it. Uh, concerning the, uh, the, the attitude here of these on that Passover night. I remember talking to Kearns about the illustration afterwards. And he says, ah, he got that from Bullinger. And sure enough, I looked in Bullinger and there it was. Uh, so we'll, we'll attribute this first to Paisley and then to Bullinger in the Companion Bible. If you want to, if you want to see it, basically, look at there. It's, it's, it's very good. Uh, but he talks about, the, about the, uh, the, the nature of faith here on that Passover night and how it was the objectivity of the presence of the blood uh, that was the difference. It was not how much or how intense the uh, the faith was, but rather it was the blood that was there. And can you see this? Who is it? Uh, you know, we, we say we, we think sometimes. You know, I, I got to see the blood. I got to, and I do. Don't misunderstand me. But our salvation is not my seeing the blood. My salvation is God seeing the blood. All right. The Passover was when God sees the blood. I will pass over, and when I see the blood, uh, I will pass over. Uh, and here is this objectivity. Uh, in the atoning work of Christ that is the objective basis uh, for, our, for our salvation. So I was impressed with Paisley, uh, but then I, I, somebody gave me Bullinger one time. Compan this is coming from the Companion Bible. You have the Companion Bible. Bullinger is so dispensational, he would put, show he would put Schofield as a candidate for teaching the Sunday school class. Uh, got some strange notions uh, in, in places, but 
sometimes the insight is really quite remarkable. So I, I went to Bullinger. Here's what Bullinger says. Uh, the blood was a token for Jehovah. Uh, faith in the fact that it had been sprinkled gave peace to all within. It was not and is not the act of faith which secured, but the truth that was believed. If no blood, belief that it was there gave no security. If blood was there, doubt as to the fact would destroy peace, but it would not destroy the security. Now, Paisley put that in a nice little story about you know, some guy tossing and turning that night. Uh, and, and, and that's a remarkable picture. Right? And you can well picture that. You know, here are, are two firstborn kids in Israel. Uh, and, and they heard everything that Moses said. And, and they heard uh, their father uh, taking the lamb, or saw their father taking the lamb and killing the lamb and putting the blood there. They heard all of that. They saw it being done. Uh, and, and they went to bed that night. Uh, and, and here's one of the firstborn. And, and the blood is covered. He saw it there, right? God, but he can't see it. Inside the house, you couldn't see the blood, you know. Uh, that, that was hidden from, from sight. Be and here's this firstborn, and he's tossing and he's turning. Right? And, and, and he's, he's restless all night long uh, as to whether or not that thing is going to work. Where, where's the death angel? Uh, is he near our house? And there, there's this, this and he painted this picture, and we're getting uh, But what happened? Here's this kid that tossed and turned all night, but the kid woke up the next day. Didn't have much peace, didn't have a whole lot of faith didn't have a whole lot of faith, was not subjectively in joy, but he was saved. Not because of the degree of his faith, but because of the objective presence of the blood. Here's another kid who saw the same thing, who heard the same thing, and he sleeps, ah, the blood is there, and he sleeps in peace, uh, and he sleeps in peace and confidence. Uh, well, both of those kids were equally saved. All right? They were both equally saved. Uh, one uh, enjoyed it a bit more had a bit more peace, a bit more confidence, but he was no more saved. It is not the degree of our faith. How many times have we harped on this? Have you heard this uh, put to you people here? Uh, that it's not the degree of your faith that saves, it's the object of faith that saves. It is the object of faith that gives value to faith. Saving faith is not saving faith just because I have faith. It is not saving faith because I'm diligent in it, because I'm fervent, and because I'm really having peace in it. No, saving faith is saving faith because the object of that faith is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the object of faith that determines the value of faith. The Passover gives us such a vivid lesson uh, of the objectivity of that faith. And I dare say that there were Egyptian kids that night who probably heard what was going on and saw some of what was going on and they scoffed and they mocked and they went to bed that night with plans of what they were going to do tomorrow. But they didn't like it. They died. They died. Uh, going to bed with a false peace and a false security, blowing off the Word of God. Uh, no. They died. They died. The objectivity. So I say the Passover gives us a very vivid lesson, a very picturesque lesson of what saving faith uh, is. But it also, it also says something uh, about finding our sustenance uh, in the Lamb. This is, I, I think, something that we, uh, that we fail to... Uh, focus on sometimes. Uh, but after the blood was shed and the blood was applied, uh, then this lamb was to be eaten. You have the instructions for that in verses 8 uh, and following. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, uh, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. 
and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until morning, ye shall burn with fire. You've got to eat this. Eat this lamb. Now this lamb represents Christ. It represents Christ. Here is that one that was just slain for them. Here is that one whose blood was now sprinkled as their deliverance, as their salvation. And now the instruction is to eat it. To eat it. Take this one. Take this lamb. Feast on this lamb. Feast on this lamb. The slain lamb became food for a new life. Uh, it's a symbol here. The eating is always in the Old Testament a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of fellowship. Once at enmity. Now at peace, there's reconciliation. So you sit down to meal with someone. It's a picture of peace uh, and communion. That certainly is there. Uh, but the thing that, uh, that, that strikes me here is the assimilation. I see here the assimilation uh, of that lamb uh, to itself. Uh, can you see the parallel of this to John? Look at John chapter 6. And, and I think the Lord is playing upon this, this very thought. John chapter 6. Verses 48, Christ says, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread which I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life uh, of the world. Verse 53, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh, of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life uh, in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Eating the flesh, drinking the blood uh, of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is not literal, obviously. This is not literal. We do not eat uh, the flesh and drink the blood of Christ in a literal way, that would be impossible as well as absurd. And Christ here is speaking of that assimilation. You assimilate me. Here's faith, and here is the operation of faith that takes that life of Christ, that takes that death of Christ, and now assimilates it uh, as it were to self. Here's the appropriation, the constant appropriation, as that which we eat uh, becomes part of us. And again, I don't know how this works. I, I don't know how this works. What you eat, be, you, 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 how, how does that work? You chew it up and it gets there and it turns all that stuff becomes part of you somehow. I don't know. You know. I don't know. Uh, but w what we eat becomes becomes part of us, right? Uh, there's that you are what you eat, they say. Is that, that's true to some extent, I suppose. It has to be true to some extent. Uh, I, so you watch what you eat. Well, spiritually it's true. What do we eat? What are we feasting on? We want to feast upon Christ and we want to eat Christ. And the idea here is the assimilation, uh, the assimilation of Christ to ourselves. We allow Him, we make Him by this partaking to become part uh, of our very being and part of our very fiber. Uh, we are sustaining ourselves. We eat to sustain life. All right? And here is this sustaining uh, of our spiritual welfare and our spiritual enjoyment as we partake, uh, as we eat, as we feast. Uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just a one-time meal. So we're going to see this was, this was done on a yearly basis, this celebration. Uh, and feasting on Christ is not just a one-time meal. Uh, the, the more you do it, the better. All right? we, 
been eating a bunch of junk here these sorry uh, these last few days. Been eating a bunch of junk. Uh, it's Christmas, right? So we eat junk at Christmas. Uh, but you don't do that all the time, right? Uh, and, and you eat the good stuff, but you don't do that constantly. You eat it, you know, regular basis. Uh, but you feast always. The more you feast on Christ, the better uh, you're going to be. Uh, you, you wouldn't think uh, you, you wouldn't think of just having one meal a week for your physical food. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't get on well. You wouldn't get on well. Uh, well, you're not going to get on well if you have one spiritual feast and one feasting upon Christ uh, per week or per period or per whatever. Uh, it is a daily feasting uh, upon Him, the constant nourishment for our faith uh, that will then intensify and then will grow. So faith sustains itself uh, in the land. Saving faith is objective. It's initial, yes, as we place that faith upon Christ. Uh, but saving faith never stops. And sanctifying faith has the same object as justifying faith. Uh, it's always focusing there as we draw our attention to that Lamb of God. Then I also see here that this faith begins a new life. The Passover began something. Chapter 12, verse 2, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. The beginning of months. Here is this Passover celebration that marks their deliverance, that marks their redemption. It was the beginning of something. Like it was Tozier. Uh, you ever read Tozier? Old Christian Missionary Alliance, was it? Uh, spiritual man. Uh, enjoy reading some of Tozier stuff. Uh, but uh, recall a line that, that he had a title of something. I forget where it was. But he talked about faith as a journey and not a destination. You see, faith is a journey and not a destination. Uh, it, it's not just a one-time deal. You see, and his point is again what we have made here very often. It's not did you believe, but are you believing? You see, faith begins something. Uh, faith in Christ is not an end, uh, just a one-off operation. It begins a whole new life, and that I think is the implication that we have here. This marks the beginning of months. Here is the beginning now of your journey, if you will, uh, into that promised land. Uh, and the picture prophecy of that, I think, cannot escape us. All right, the last thing that I want to say about the Passover here uh, is that it's a lesson in sanctified worship. The Passover gives us a lesson in sanctified worship. Uh, it's a public testimony. The celebration of this Passover was a public testimony uh, that they were part of the redeemed. Look at verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. God's redemptive act is to be the object of their memory. You are to do this year by year as a testimony that I have redeemed it's individual. It's an individual celebration here. Uh, it was a public celebration. You do this together. But there was an individual participation, as we're going to see, the personal requirement for purity. Although this was a, uh, a, a collective operation, an operation for the entire nation, individuals were disqualified from participating here if there was personal uncleanness, if there was personal sin. 
collective worship uh, requires individual participation and individual purity if we are to be in the very presence of God. And it was a practical opportunity for training. The Passover became an opportunity for the training of the next generation. Look at verse 26. It shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over from the house of the children of Israel in Egypt, and he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. The celebration, this year-by-year celebration, was a means of instructing the children of each coming generation of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus. It became a means of teaching the children the importance uh, and the necessity uh, of the blood. This marks the sacrifice. This marks the basis of our redemption. Now, I'll close with this thought. I'll close with this thought, and it's a thought that the New Testament draws for us. And you can reflect on the implications of this yourself. The New Testament very definitely links links the celebration uh, of what we call the communion, the Lord's table, with the celebration of the Passover. The Passover was a commemorative feast. It was that which caused the people to remember. It was that which was making the people uh, reflect upon what God had done in redeeming them. The New Testament counterpart to that sacrament is the Lord's table, a feast of remembrance, a feast that is designed to teach, to remind, to publicly testify to the union that we have in Christ, that He has redeemed us. There's that public testimony. And here is this constant reminder. This is repeated over and over and over again. Uh, Why is it? Why is it that the Passover was repeated? Here was a sacrament that was repeated over and over and over again because of its... Uh, because of the proclamation of this message, a message of remembrance. And what it symbolized is that which is to be over and over again enjoyed uh, by the people uh, of God. And so it is the communion. We don't repeat our baptism. Our baptism is a one-off operation. Uh, But the Lord's Supper uh, is that which is over and over and over and over again. And it becomes a means, and this is the point that I'll leave you with, Uh, it becomes a means of teaching our children. It becomes a means of teaching our children. We've addressed this before uh, as to why uh, as to why in this particular church we have certain restrictions uh, as far as the table is concerned, uh, as far as your children are concerned. Uh, I, I've been in places where kids two years old are putting their hand in the communion uh, and, and taking this and taking that. Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't do that. Uh, we have restrictions. We have age limits. We have the profession of faith that the child must give to the session of this church uh, before there is the celebration, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And that is good and that is wise. This is no light thing. This is no casual thing. Uh, but it is good even, though your children do not participate, uh, that they are there and they learn. This becomes a means of declaring and of teaching uh, your children, a visible means of teaching your children Uh, concerning uh, that redemptive work uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of His blood and the salvation that is the consequence of that appropriation of Christ uh, by faith. Well, the Passover.
uh, an important part of the book of Exodus. God delivered these people by the blood of the sacrifice. And so it is that he delivers us by the blood of the sacrifice. And I want you to see, as they saw, at least the believers saw, uh, that these were just the pictures of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're still beneficial for me. 